0: What's up everyone? Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Fast Track, formerly known as Pave the Way Podcast. I'm your host Greg Hellback, and on this show, you are going to learn exactly how to be successful as a real estate investor. It doesn't matter if you're brand new or if you've done dozens and dozens of deals. This is a podcast you're going to be able to listen to that's going to give you actionable, specific advice on how to be successful within real estate investing. I'm going to interview top-notch real estate investors each and every week. And there's also going to be some content that is just going to be me telling you exactly about my journey and how I've went from a broke kid starting out to a million dollar real estate investor. So if you want to learn how to be successful investing in real estate, this is the show to listen to. And I'm looking forward to being able to serve you at a high level. Eric Brewer, third time on the show, man. There's a reason for that. You know your stuff. So thank you for coming back on.
1: Thanks for having me. I think this is the first time I've ever been on a show three times.
0: Well, it's funny that you say that because the first time you came on the show, I was in my old office down the street from here and you were really not on social media that much. You probably didn't do too many interviews. And now you're everywhere, like bigger pockets. You're going to be on CNN before you know it. And Fox, you're going to be all over the place, man. Yeah.
1: I don't know it'd be one of either one of those. I might hold off just a little bit longer, but. Yeah. uh, (laughs) No, it's pretty cool. It's been a a cool development. Um, Yeah. The first time we talked, it might've been the first podcast I'd ever been on, to be honest with, because I think you and I got connected through John Martinez and had geeked out on some sales stuff together and you invited him to come over and talk and I didn't have much to talk about, but somehow we made it an interesting 45 minutes or so but uh yeah, it's pretty cool to be back for a third time. I appreciate it I'm looking forward to it.
0: My pleasure man Well, you only did like 3,500 houses at the time so you know you didn't have that much experience you know I don't know if you're qualified, but now I think you're a little bit more qualified yeah, a couple really? houses here and there in Pennsylvania yeah. I always call you the PA King man all my buddies I'm like, oh, you're a PA you know Eric Brewer he's like the king of PA and they're like, oh, I know Brewer I'm like you probably do yeah. uh, that's funny. Well, let's get into it. So you you mentioned the sales word here, and this is something that I know you like to talk about. I like to talk about a lot of people. They have challenges with sales. They don't understand it. They don't look at it in a systemized uh, you know, manner. So let's just kind of cover like, what are your, like if, if we're going to really look at sales from a high level today and, and make this a really tactical podcast, if you're training someone, I know you're not involved in your business as much anymore, but if you're going to teach sales training, like what are the the pillars that you like to teach someone so they can take it, And they can go out and execute it. Because a lot of people, they really have an issue with the the sales aspect with sellers.
1: I think there's a a couple like fundamentals, right? Like I think if you look at the basics of sales, most people probably have half of it, right? Um, And the other half, um, you know, can make or break whether or not they get a deal. So um, for me, some of the, you know, without getting into the, the entire process, I think if I were to look at what most people might be doing now that I think they should do differently, that would drastically impact. Um, the, the outcome or the results that they get. Over the phone, I think far too many people disqualify motivated sellers. We've actually gotten so good at disqualifying unmotivated sellers, we now can disqualify a motivated seller. That's how good we've gotten, right? We can actually talk somebody out of selling their house. Um, I think what happens so often in the beginning of a phone call, if it's not done tactfully, is people are asking high impact questions when they only have a low impact relationship. Things like, are you looking to sell in the next 90 days? If you've been on the phone for 10 to 12 minutes, that's a very high impact question. It changes a lot of what happens in that seller's life, but you have a low impact uh, relationship. What does that mean? You might not get the truth or they're answering a different question than the one that you're asking. I think a lot of times when we ask people if they're ready to sell, the answer to that question that they're answering in their mind is, am I ready to move? Selling and moving are two different things. You and I can write a contract today. You might not need to move out for 30 days. We offer a sell and stay program here where people can stay for up to a year in their house after I've bought it. We structure those deals differently. We often sell them to buy and hold people. We pack it with rents, right? Where if I think the rent is a thousand bucks a month, I'll make it 1500 bucks a month. That's $18,000 in a year. I'll pack the deal 18 grand and say, Greg, you want to buy this house for $118,000. My net is a hundred and he's going 118. I go, yeah, there's $1,500 a, m- a month rent already in escrow for you when you go to settlement. Wow. That house only rents for a grand. You're going to give me 1500 sign here, press hard. It's got to go through both copies. Right? <laughs> so I think what a lot of people do is they over and they say, are you looking to sell in the next 90 days? Some people won't even attend or make an offer to someone that doesn't say yes to that. And we also ask for price a lot of times on the front end. Again, high impact question. What's the least amount you take for your house is a high impact question. You have low impact relationships. You're a stranger that called them or texted them or sent them a 40 cent piece of mail. They've only known you for about 12 minutes. They're not gonna give up the goods. Do I? Here's the only reason I ask about price on the initial call, because they expect it. They expect there to be some type of, I generally don't care. Right? You know what our criteria is for going to an appointment if they'll accept if their are asking price is less than two hundred percent of the this, this estimate, we're still going to go to the appointment. It doesn't matter. Like you're asking what's you know what do you want for your house? That's the way that people well, what they want and what they'll take are two different things. And I can't get to what they'll take in twelve minutes. I need to go yeah. through a real sales process, right? And uh, I don't want to do that necessarily on the first call or like in our model, we have a lead manager who schedules appointments and acquisitions that attends. I don't want to try and force a lead manager to be a salesperson that's a great negotiator. I just want them to build a lot of trust. I think too many people seek rapport. Rapport is surface level. It's gotten a bad rap. We mislabel it. We want to actually seek trust in our sales process because I think rapport is BS.
0: New. that's so good because a lot of people have a problem building rapport or trust and they don't understand how to actually do it. And it's from asking good questions and listening, not talking about the fact that you both like the Philadelphia Eagles. That is not no, learned- exactly like,
1: right. Cause that, that may be good while you're walking through the house. But when you sit down and you price anchor him at 40 cents on the dollar, he could give two, you know, what's, if you like the Eagles or the Redskins or the cow, well, you like the Cowboys you- and you hit him at 40% on the dollar, he might swing on you. But <laughs> I learned this from a Navy SEAL I took a lot of coaching for. And he said, the two best ways to build real trust is through vulnerability and transparency. And if you think about that, in most people's sales process, there's the absence of any of that. We're not (laughs) transparent. We dodge in the shadows and we like, you know, don't give them a price and say, call me for an offer. And they go, how much are you offering? And go, well, you're supposed to give me the price first. (laughs) When I go to a car lot, they don't ask me. It's on the sticker. (laughs) <laughs> right. Like it's, it's so backwards. Um, and it, all it does is encourage sales resistance. And then we get mad when people give us resistance, but it's their response um, that most people have built up almost like an immunity to salespeople that they build up um, over the, you know, the course of time of buying cars, buying houses, buying anything of significant money. Um, and then um, vulnerability, we always seem like we got to be so confident right? We have to be an expert when it comes to the numbers. I'll tell people like, hey, I apologize. Um, When it comes to the numbers, I'm not really all that great at it. Um, Frankly, I'll tell people, Greg, this is the toughest part about my job. I hate negotiating. I hate it. It's the worst part. I wish I could just come in here. You and I become buddies. We don't even talk about price. You write it down on a piece of paper. I fold it up and we go to settlement 30 days from now and I'll pay you when I get there. (laughs) Unfortunately, it's not how it works. Um, but I just want to let you know, if I seem a little uncomfortable or nervous when we're talking about money, it's because I really want to help you. But I also realize that money means a lot to both of us. And sometimes those two don't just come together. Um, so just do, do, will you forgive me in advance if I just seem a little uneasy um, when we get into the price? And I'll go, oh, dude, don't worry about it, man. I was like, well, I just don't want to make you an offer that would upset you. And you know oh. what they're going to say? Dude, it's no big deal. I'm not going to get upset.
0: Now you have permission to make a low offer.
1: You promise, Bill. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So I always say you have to build enough trust that you can make an insulting offer at their kitchen table and not get punched in the face.
0: I love that. It's so true because a lot of investors will make the offer, like, oh, I'll offer you $250 for your house. And they're just like, what $250? It's worth $450. But if you anchor them in advance, like Eric, you're going to hate the offer. I feel a little uncomfortable making it. You promise you won't get pissed. When they say, no, it's okay, I get it. You know, they start justifying before you even open your mouth. I know you got to make a profit. I know you're not offering me market value. That's why a realtor isn't in here. And when they make you the offer, their expectations are now at level two versus level six. And you can start that negotiation, right? And that's where a lot of salespeople, they get hit in the face. They get thrown out of the house. By the way, on a side note, did not did you get punched in the face at an appointment one time? I heard I did. that. By the
1: way, I won the fight though. So he I got hit first I didn't get what hit happened? last. Can you just happened. tell
0: the people what happened? This is insane. Yeah.
1: So um this was oh my goodness. Um 10 years ago I bet and uh 10 years ago uh, we had a very small buy box. I bought stuff that say that was like $200,000 or less. Yeah. Um I was pr- primarily uh you know fix and flipper didn't do much wholesale. So if a deal didn't fit in this nice little box, um, our acquisitions people didn't feel comfortable moving forward. Well, this yeah. particular deal, uh, there was a lot of really good circumstances. Guy was from out of town. He actually drove. Now that I think about it, it was super creepy. But he drove here to Pennsylvania from Georgia, which he lived in a motor home, um, stayed in the motor home. And the house he was selling was on a golf course community and a tenant had just moved out. And I think our fix and flip numbers were like 150. But my acquisitions agent's like, dude, the guy wants 180. I think it's worth like 229 as is. Um, And uh, he wouldn't novate access. He was just hard pressed to get. He wanted to close in seven days. My guy's like, Eric, like you have to authorize us to pay 180. Um, And if anybody can get a discount from him, I asked him 12 times. He said, no, 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 no. But if you can get a discount, you know, know, it'll work. And if we're going to pay 180, you have to authorize it because it's your money. So um, at the time, it was very close to the the location where I would take my son for football practice and I coached. So I was like, yeah, I said, the guy wants to meet at, at, at six o'clock. I'll drive my son off at football practice at 545. Normally, there's plenty of kids there. I'll be good. I'll let the other coaches know, coaches know that I'll be back in an hour or so. So I get there at 545. Of course, of all things, no coaches anywhere in sight. I'm the only guy there. So I text my acquisitions agent because for some reason I didn't have the guy's contact information. I just I had an appointment and an address. And I said, hey, let so-and-so know uh, I'll be a half hour late. I apologize. The coaches aren't here. I can't leave these, you know, 29-year-old kids. <laughs>
0: In a field I mean, by 20, themselves. Yeah. yeah,
1: I can't do that. And he's like, oh, no problem. I'll let him know. He texts me back. He said, the guy said it's fine. So five minutes later, a coach rolls up and I'm like, oh, cool. I got to run. So I get there like 10 minutes late when, when Joe had texted him and said, I'd be 30. And he said, that was okay. And I parked at the bottom of the Hill and he was standing up. There was like a sloped driveway and he was standing like just off the front porch out on the sidewalk. And he he had like a very aggressive stance. I didn't think much of like, whatever, the guy's got a lot going on. So I come up the driveway and I get 20 yards away. I'm like, Hey, Bill, what's going on? Good to see you. Thank you. I get there. And he says something that don't quite make it out. And he repeats it. He goes something like, you better pay me thousand thousand effing dollars. if I lose your video?
0: Yeah, but I can still hear you. He goes, you better pay
1: me a thousand effing dollars for making me wait 15 minutes. And uh, I said, well, maybe we can work something out if we get in the house. Bam! Like, I literally, I was starting to tell the guy, like, yeah, no problem. Thousand bucks, I'll work it into the deal. And halfway through deal, he punched me in my face.
0: Oh, my like, God. Just you, just, you, you I'm, by yourself.
1: Just it's 6 15 in the afternoon in uh I don't know, August or September. So it was daylight out. And it like shocked me. And at first, I was like, what is going on? And then like instincts kicked in, and I like bear hugged the guy and drove him back into the front of the house. And I remember like he he like slammed into the wall, and I remember seeing like his head like kind of bounce off. And I was like, Oh my god, I just killed the guy. Oh, my and uh god. he like fell to the ground, kind of slumped over, and I like standing over top, and I was like, What the f are you doing and uh i just like went down and got my car called the cops the cops came brought him out of the house asked him about it. of course he denied the whole thing i used to have the picture somewhere i had like a little fat lip oh my god but, yeah so i didn't have enough trust that's why i got punched in the face
0: oh my goodness but that's crazy pretty dude. crazy I don't, right? I've never heard I don't know why
1: my video is this video going to cause problems i got the spinning blue of death right now
0: yeah, you're good. We'll just, we're good until it comes back on. It's no big deal, but that's- uh, If
1: the audio cuts out or something, I'll log back in, but-
0: Yeah, no, the audio's good. You're good. I can hear you loud and So clear. think
1: about this. So, so here's the other thing I think people get wrong and you just mentioned it, right? About Price Anchor, fill this word in. Now, you can't cheat because you know, I think a little bit better than most people, but most people would fill this blank in how? He who speaks blank loses when it comes to negotiations. First. How do you feel about that?
0: Ah, uh, it depends. I feel like it depends. I mean, if there's two schools of thoughts to it, I'll give you my my honest opinion. So, I've had okay. this happen on in in two circumstances. So, I've had I'll give you one example of. Actually, I can give you two examples. So, I had a house. This was a while ago. I made over a hundred grand on the thing rehabbing it. So, not a normal deal for any circumstances. And the way that negotiation happened was, I actually met the gentleman at the property. It was in a really really good area back in the East Coast. And we did the wholesale process with him, and we got to the money piece. And I had a number in my head that I was going to be able to pay for this property to take it down, fix and flip it. And before I shared my number, I was like, let me see what this guy wants. Cause this house was filled with mold. It was a disaster. Mm-hmm. And I said, Brian, his name's, the name's guy's name was Brian Maroney on five orchard in Nanuet. I said, Brian, if I paid, and I had a lot of trust built with this guy. So this is not like a onesie twosie. Like I said, Brian, um, if I paid cash and, and bought the house as is, what would you want to get for the property? And I just shut my mouth. And he said a number that was lower than my first offer price. And I was like, yeah. in my Ooh. head, I was like, that's odd. And then this is where yeah. like this is where it got interesting. I said, okay, I don't know if I can do that, Brian. Um, if I was able to do that somehow, what would your next step be? So I didn't even make yeah. him an offer. I just shut up. And he said, I can't make a decision right now. So yeah. I, I, I didn't make him an offer. I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back home and I'm going to run my numbers and I'm going to call you when you're ready to make a decision. And he said, I need to, like a day or two to, to, to talk about this. So he doesn't know what my offer is. I know what his price is. And it was lower than my first off, like my anchor price. So when I called him back, I said, Brian, how did that this conversation go with your girlfriend? And he said, I realized I was asking too little for the property. I said, understood. What number do you want? He gave me a higher number that was still super low. I don't have mm-hmm. an offer from him yet. And I'm like, this is bizarre. And he knows the house needs a ton of work and he didn't want to do anything. He was added from Jersey. And mm-hmm. uh, so when we got into the actual negotiation, the offer that I made him was basically a commitment on the number he already had in mind. And we ended up doing the deal, made a bunch of money. And that was you know probably more of a unicorn deal, I would say. So yeah. in that case, him going first, I guess, helped. Uh, But normally what happens, Eric, is that if the seller gives you a price, okay, the the, the person who speaks first loses, right? A lot of salespeople will hear a number from a seller, and it might be higher than obviously what they want to pay. And they'll automatically throw that lead in the garbage and say, oh, they want 350. I can't pay 350. I can pay 250. This whole thing is not going to work out. Because right. the seller kind of started the price anchor, and now the investor is is like mentally psyched out of the deal.
1: I call that a price
0: kite. A price kite.
1: <laughs> yes, they 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 ran the kite up in the air, right? So like, here's what I would say, right? Like with a price anchor, <laughs> a price so, they, right, like an anchor is going to drive it down, an anchor is going to float it up. If my Mao, let's say, is a hundred thousand yeah. dollars, I I probably want to start like a price anchor at sixty.
0: That's if okay, so if you're I was gonna say okay, that makes sense.
1: Right now, if I if if I speak first, I start at sixty, right? Yes. If I ask the seller what they want and they tell me one fifty, how do you think that impacts the price anchor for most people?
0: You're gonna go. You're gonna start. You instead of going from sixty, you're gonna probably start at like ninety. Because right. It's so if you, high. if
1: you, I know you're a big reader. uh I, I'm. I'm gonna. I would bet the house on this. You ever read the book Persuasion by uh, Dr. Course, the
0: Orange Book. So and
1: have. yeah. So like Cialdini had a bunch of examples in there, right? Where he like compared um a couple different restaurants. Everything was virtually the same, and if they had a five thousand dollar bottle. Of wine on there, their average wine sales would be a thousand bucks. If their most expensive wine bottle was only $3,000, their average wine sales was 200 bucks, right? And by the way, they never had the most expensive wine to sell. So it's not like it skewed the numbers. It was just when, and I do this all the time. I don't know about you. I know enough about wine to know what I like, but I'm far from a wine connoisseur. I literally look at the most expensive bottle and then I try and come down near the middle and then I go up a little from the middle because like, hey, I'm supposed to be a little bit of a baller shot caller. I should be able to get more than like the middle of the road wine, right? Like what Kanye say, I didn't, why do you think I work so, uh, what do you think I work hard for to push a RAV4, right? So I can't can't drive a RAV4, I can't bottle the middle of the the, the pack wine. Uh, Same thing. So if you believe in that, by the way, science, behavioral, science, um, they'll tell you who speaks first when in that methodology. And I would go back and say, and I think what you gave as a unicorn example was what most people grasp onto when when they believe that he who speaks first loses, right? Now, the reality might have been if that guy was thinking, let's just say 50 and your anchor was going to be 70, you might have shocked him in to making a deal that day. Yes. And now you were lucky enough that you got the deal down the road, yeah. um, you know, but who know? you know, when you leave never a maybe it's always a no, right? So when you left that day and you weren't able to make a deal with them, it was a no. And there was a thousand absolute. things. that Yeah. So, I mean, as long as you hold on to, you know, but how many times does that happen? How many times is their uh-huh. asking price lower than your anchor? And the only thing I would say is if you just, if you get better at anchoring super low, that, that should never happen.
0: Exactly. So the
1: lesson there for the lesson there would be not that he spoke first and that worked out, it would be that your price anchor should have been lower than it was. Yeah,
0: should have been hundred grand on the house. Right, yeah. It, it's funny that you say that because I've found that the best way to even make a price anchor too, you don't necessarily even have to say to the owner, like, my offer is X. You could say, like, hey, I saw a property down the road sell for 55 grand. Can you believe it? And now yeah. you set a price without having them associate that price with you. And you can have them basically process that. And sometimes they'll be like, oh, well, I mean, I was hoping to get 60 for mine. Well, your low anchor yeah. that you started with just got the seller to come down on a pretty low number to begin with. And that offer wasn't even from you. So by starting low and using the, the price anchor on your end as the buyer, you've already got the seller down without even telling the seller what your offer is. Like there's so many ways sure. to do that. You know? Here's a
1: here's a good one for anybody that does investing in areas where public auctions are popular. I like to do this one. And I'll say, Greg, um, uh, you know, as a uh, investor, car dealer, uh, yeah, I mean, lots of people go to auctions to get a good deal. Um, you ever seen any you go, yeah, yeah, I see auctions all the time, blah, blah, blah. And I go, so we go to a lot of auctions. Um, we, we buy quite a bit of homes from there. And uh, I've been in auctions before on homes sort of like this where like the high bid from, I don't know, 15, 20 people that came to the auction, high bid might be like, I don't know, I've seen it, $50,000, $55,000. Um, if you were the seller of the property that day at that auction, what would you say if someone bid okay. $55,000? Right will like go, hey, thing. I just want to let you know, uh, by the way, because a lot of times that's a hidden deal killer, right? Like where people, uh, particularly if I'm meeting with like an older person, um, the public auctions, a lot of times what we're competing against. Because it's as is, they can sell it and close in forty five days. Um, it's a very simple process. So I'm doing two things: I'm price anchoring, but I'm also letting them know that hey, if you thought about taking it to an auction, you're going to get fifty five grand, right? So that's enough. I I like what I you know I call it like blame the third party. So if yes, they get a third party uh, offer. Yeah, they're they're blaming someone else, and I'll be like, yeah, I've seen other investors around here buying homes like this one for sixty sixty two. Uh, does that kind of match up with what, what you were thinking and they'll go 62 that's crazy I'll go yeah I don't know how they're getting away with buying it <laughs> <Yeah>, that's <laughs> freaking crooks. um but, uh, yeah so I'm, I'm really big on and that's that because that's why most people don't want to, to start the price anchor right It makes them nervous because like if I know I can pay a hundred if I offer 60 I could blow the deal but if you really have trust, you could literally offer them zero and you're not, they're, they're not going to be upset. Right. Um, so yeah, I think that, that your ability to be able to start with a price price acre has a lot to do with how the first 30 to 45 minutes of the call or the appointment goes. And they're going to give you permission to, to start off low. I mean, they're not saying like, go ahead and start low, but it's what they're saying. Right. They're like, Hey man, it's okay. I understand you got to make a profit. No big deal. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Um, so yeah, that's one of the things that I think most people have wrong. I, I I'd always want to go first.
0: Well, especially too when you can when you can indirectly make the offer, like you just mentioned, like oh, I've seen houses sell for sixty grand. What are your thoughts on that? Now they're right. not getting mad at you; they're getting mad at the the fact, right? right? Oh my God, that's crazy! I know, I know. I mean, I I couldn't believe it either. I mean, shoot, sounds like that's certainly something you wouldn't consider. And now you can you know have them start. You know what I mean? Like that low. Cause if you're willing to pay a hundred and you start at 60 and they say no to 60 and you made the first offer, like now you can, like I always say, you can always go up. It's hard to come down. Like, especially too with, with sellers. It's like when you lock up a house and you're at one price and you realize you screwed up and you got to come down, they're going to feel a lot more pissed off because they thought they were selling for X. But if you start low and then you come up and you make them feel like you're really going to bat for them. It gets yeah. the seller psychologically to commit to that deal because they feel like they're getting a good deal versus, you know what I mean? Like that's a huge part of the seller psychology.
1: Yeah. Like if you, that's the whole get, right? When you go to price anchor, you rig calibrate what they think is expected. And when you, cut when you cover the gap between 60 and let's say a hundred, which is your MAO, they feel like you've championed right on, on their behalf. And you've come up all of these And they, by the way, you need to make sure. I think the other thing a lot of people miss is they don't offer an explanation for the difference between where they started yes. and where they're going to go. There yeah. has to be a give and take, or at some point they're going to go, so wait, what happened? Did you just try and rip me off a few minutes ago? Like at some point that's Now, are they going to, people are going to, they never say that. Well, of yeah. course they're not going to say it, right? But that's what maybe let me think it over, or I need to check with my wife, or I'm just not quite sure. You got to remember like, we are, are skilled communicators. We study a lot about what to say, what not to say, the tone in which to say it, how fast to say it. Consumers don't do any of that. They don't, they're not skilled communicators, right? So a lot of times they don't say anything, which makes it super hard for us to overcome objections, or they say one thing and they mean another. And then we start trying to solve a symptom, not the actual problem. Um, so I think you just got to remember that, you know, most consumers, probably 99% of the people we deal with are not great communicators. You got to really try and go two or three layers deep to say, well, you know, Greg, when you say, here's another thing, people go, um, well, I'm going to get four or five offers. I like to say, well, you know, I think that's a great idea. I mean, honestly, if you want to get the most money, I would get 10. I mean, this process only takes, I don't know, hour. hour, 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 hour and a half. Um, so for you to spend 15 hours to get, I don't know, sometimes you can get two, three grand more for your free house. Like, why not spend 15 hours to get an extra two grand? And they will go, I'm not going to do that. And I'll go, so when you say um, you want to get uh, five different offers, how will you choose? And they'll say, um, well, the best deal. And what do most people think when they hear best deal? The best highest day. price. All you have to say is, hey, Greg, when you say best deal, um, What exactly do you mean? Oh, I love and that it one. might be um, who can close the quickest. It might be well, whoever gives the biggest deposit. It may, whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. What it is should be the focal point of your compelling offer, right? Because everybody else just goes, well, "I can close in two weeks. We're the best. We got better business beer." Like whoever runs into a client and goes, "Yeah, you know, we're the second best buyer in this market." <laughs> Nobody. Nobody. They all say the same stuff. So you're not doing anything to separate yourself. Ask that one question if you're listening to this. Every time a seller says something, just say, hey, Greg, when you say that, what exactly do you mean? Love You'll that. be surprised how much different it is right, than what you thought it was in the beginning.
0: It gets the truth out so fast. I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of salespeople, if they're not trained or they don't have experience, they'll take an objection or a smokescreen like that and just take it for what it is. But if you can go that extra layer deep and say, Eric, when you say, you know, the best deal, what do you mean? And they say an answer that you can solve. It gets you closer to the deal without having to worry about that objection they said, If because if their main concern, like you said, is like, oh, I want to make sure the person I'm dealing with is credible. And the best deal to me is working with a person who's most credible. Like you said, yeah. you present to them how you're going to be able to solve their problem and be the most credible. And then they're not going to have to get the three or four other offers, you know?
1: Yeah. Somebody told me a while ago that price is the main objection when you bring nothing else to the table.
0: So true. Oh my gosh. So freaking true, man. Oh, yeah. That. Let me Let me share with you a quick story on this actually happening. As I want to put this, like, because you shared your fight story, I'll share with you a non-fight story.
1: <laughs> good. <So> this is <laughs> yeah. a good one. That's uh, enough for a day. Yeah.
0: yeah. So my acquisitions guy, we got a great lead. There was competition, as always. This is down uh, in, in Delaware. And he went on the appointment. And he didn't get the deal on the first go around. And we were talking afterwards and I'm like, well, what could you have done better? You know, blah, 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 blah. So he's like, "Oh, they were getting a bunch of offers and he wasn't making a decision on the spot. So he didn't want to share the number with them, understandably so. So we we, we kind of brainstormed like a, a game plan. And I'm like, here's the deal. If you want to get this property, I'm going to tell you exactly what to do to get this deal. I said, Look for an excuse to get back into the property. Say, hey, Pete, I forgot to go in the attic. And by the way, this was down the street from where he lives. I said, hey, look for an excuse to get back in the property, okay? Go do another walkthrough, right, and and find a way to get back inside because the in-person is where the deal is going to happen, not over the phone in this case. So he goes back to, and I said, on your way out the door, say, hey, Pete, I know we were supposed to talk about that pesky price on Thursday. I'm already here right now. Why don't we just see if we can work this thing out? So on his way out the door, he's like, says exactly what I told him to say, sits down on the couch and they're going over what's most important to you. What's, you know, the, the main concern. And he was able to sit in the living room and deal with all those objections that he gave him that two days before, or sorry, the day before the second day. And they worked the whole thing out. What's most important to you? you know, The whole thing got the whole deal made on the couch when there was apparently other investors coming that same day. They canceled the appointment, signed the contract with him because he was able to get into the, the the appointment again and really find out the root cause on why he didn't want to sell on the spot. And the reason was he wanted to make sure the buyer he was working with was going to be able to do what they say they were going to do, the credibility, the best deal possible. You know what I mean? And even though we got the property less right. than the competition, but – That little extra appointment got us a $35,000 deal when the next guy in line was just trying to give them an offer. You know what I mean? And he built the value there and that's why the seller took the discount because they knew they were going to be selling to a wholesaler below market value no matter what, but it was just a matter of who they were going to do it to, you know? And he felt the most comfortable with Brett because Brett sat there and took the time to actually listen to him versus everyone else just ripping offers out over the phone, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's the 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 big thing is I think we have this sort of broken thinking that everybody wants the cheapest price, wants the best price, and uh, if you literally think about like the homes that we buy, the food that we eat, the cars that we drive, the clothes that we wear, how often do we make decisions about buying the cheapest, best deal whenever we make a major purchase? Virtually never, right? And there's a few examples. I have a few friends that like literally you know, they shop at the thrift store for their clothing. They just don't care about what it looks like. And somehow they make it work with like a 30 year old Star Trek t-shirt. Right. And then like they drive a a 300,000 mile Prius because it gets them from point A to point B and it's got like mismatched fenders and like starts 30% of the time. They're, they're a minimalist, but like that, that's one in a million, right? Everybody else buys a car that makes them feel good. They, 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 they like the way it sounds like um, you know, they buy the house that like makes them feel established and successful, yeah. not the, the the two bed, one bath and put everybody in bunk beds. But we somehow <laughs> feel that like sellers and buyers are just not human, right? Like they don't operate off the same uh, wavelength that we do when we make decisions. And the reality is that's just not true, right? Like people don't generally care about, like because if they really wanted the best deal, they would list it in the MLS. But if they really cool. wanted the most money, they would fix it up. And sell it. If they really wanted all of this stuff that we assume that they do, they they wouldn't even be concerned. Like, so a lot of right. I'm sure you talk about. I'll go. Well, why wouldn't you just fix it up and sell it? I mean, that's what I'm gonna do, right? And I make lots of money doing stuff like that. Yeah, it's a lot of work, and you got to manage contractors and buy materials. But like, heck, if you want to get the most money out of it, why not flip it yourself? And they'll go. And then you know what they're gonna tell you? All the stuff that you need to use to close them. I don't have time. Like I tried it before on my grandma's house and I lost 30 grand. And <laughs> Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I'll, I'll keep that in mind as we work through this. And I try and figure out the best way that I can help you. Definitely no renovations. Is that what I'm hearing you say, Greg? And they'll go, yeah, I don't
0: want to do any of that. crap. Oh my God. Because so, they're, oh they're handling the objection for you by you being proactive about bringing it up, which is, it's funny. I, I, I talked to some investors and they're like, well, I don't want to tell the seller to list the house because they might list the house. I'm like, dude, if they were going to list the house to begin with, you want to find out now, yeah. right? Versus yeah, like- You don't have that much. Ball.
1: You're giving yeah. yourself too much credit if you think you can actually convince. Like I was thinking about this the other day. And uh, you know, if you're familiar with the Northeast and New York and Delaware and PA, we have these big plow trucks when the snow comes, right? And I wish you could see me. I'll give you the example. It's like this big gnarly looking thing that's out of like a, a sci-fi movie and it yeah. comes down the road and it's like, just and it's driving down the road and it's pushing all the snow out of the way. It's like this little trail of salt it leaves behind, right? Yeah. That's how yeah. most people sell. Really, what you should be selling like, right? is if you ever saw a little tugboat that brings like these massive cruise ships into port and yeah. it goes out and finds them like right out in the the, the the deep end, right? And it's like they're they're close to shore, but they need guided in. And the tugboat, just as small as it is, just kind of nudges this big old ship into like this tight little parking space in a dock. And it rests nice and neat right there. No dents, no bumps, no nothing. More salespeople need to be tugboats and less plow
0: trucks. That might be the name of your next book, bro. That's a good title for how to sell like a tugboat by Eric Brewer.
1: Yeah, be a tugboat, not a plow.
0: That's so true. Especially too, like I've seen another thing with sales and that's a great example. Like A lot of investors, they're they're so afraid to screw the deal up, it prevents them from using the process that is needed in order to get the deal if it's closable, right? Like, I you made a great Facebook post that was like yesterday, maybe about like closable deals, and like I remember when I first got into like how to sell, and this was a while ago, but like I thought every appointment I would go on or phone call I would make, I had to close the deal because I learned sales training, right? But yeah. When you can get into a situation where, if you do everything you have control over and work the system right, and you don't get the de- and you don't get the deal, you shouldn't feel ashamed about yourself because that was not a person right. who could help at that time. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I do. I know exactly.
0: Yeah, it it gets demoralizing with salespeople? Like, oh my God, this doesn't work. No one's motivated. Like they they make all these assumptions up in their head and then they, it screws their psyche up so they can't. Well, ex- was the process. wheel.
1: I put up the spoke. Yes, the, the wheel. spoke wheel.
0: That is exactly can yeah, you yeah, elaborate you know on that? That was a about great that. post. Yeah.
1: I uh that was great. Uh, I can actually explain it better than I can write it. So I struggled in that, that post a little bit because I went through some typing fatigue. But um, my sales manager that's been with me now, Joe Cipollini, has been working with me for almost 15 years. He got in a slump 14 years ago. And he was just, you know, he was a bleed <laughs> suck and people were by And I drew that out for him. I was like, look, dude, like, let's represent these are, you know, 100 leads in here. And there's only going to be 10 sales. And sometimes there's like five in the first 10 people you talk to, and you feel like you're the greatest gift to sales ever. Um, Sometimes they're nice and spaced out. It's like one little sale every 10 leads. That doesn't happen enough. Sometimes you'll talk to 90 people and the 10 closable transactions are in the last 10. But if you allow yourself to to, to get your mindset messed up, when you get to the closable transactions, you're going to say, I'm not going to waste my time with these people. I'm going to skip right to the offer or I built rapport and trust with all these other people and I was still hundred grand away. So I'm just going to start making offers in the beginning. That way I don't waste my time. And now when you actually get to the closable transaction, you don't make a deal when you should because mm-hmm. you modified your process. And then it just, it, it exaggerates what, you know, the slump that you thought you were in. And now you're in an actual slump because you're not being a good salesperson and following a process and doing the things that you know you need to do. So it was a really good tool. Actually, I I explained that to him like 14 years ago. And like two years ago, he told me it was the most impactful like like sales conversation he's ever had. I was like, how do you not let me know that for 12 years? I didn't think that much about it. And then, uh, so I put it up the other day because there was a guy in the office that was like, man, you know, I went like a week and I made a bunch of offers and I didn't get any deals. And Joe was like, hey, man, you need to give him the wheel talk. He needs to hear the spokes on the wheels. Um, But yeah, you got to keep the right attitude. You got to treat every lead like it's a deal until it's not.
0: That's all. That's so good. Yeah. Until proven otherwise. Yeah. Because that way your process will be dialed in so you don't have to, you know, second guess yourself. Are you a real estate investor who wants to get to the next level? Well, my name is Greg Hellbeck, and over the last five years, I have bought and sold well over 125 houses and I have learned a ton of stuff and I've made a lot of mistakes. And hopefully, as they say, a wise man learns from someone else's mistakes. So if you are a real estate investor and you want to learn how to get to the next level, you might be a good fit for my coaching program. So if you're interested in finding out if my coaching program could be a fit for you, head over to bookacallwithgreg.com. On that website, you're going to be able to simply book a call with me absolutely free for 15 minutes. And I'm basically going to see how I can best help you, right? I'm not going to high-pressure sell you. It's going to be none of that whatsoever. It's going to be a very helpful call. We're going to have a 15-minute conversation. I'm going to ask you some questions about where you're at and where you want to get to. And if you think it's a fit to potentially work with me as a coaching client, I'd love to offer the opportunity to work with you. And if it's not a fit for some reason, no big deal. That 15 minute call is gonna be super, super helpful. I'm gonna give you some good pointers so I can help you you know, get your business to the next level. There's two types of people I work with. The first person is the person who's brand new. They might not have ever done a deal before. And they really want to learn step by step how they can get their first deal, right? That's the first person. The second person I work with is someone who might have done some deals. Maybe they have, you know, a deal every other month coming in or they just have inconsistent income and they really want to learn sales and marketing strategies so they can consistently get two, three, four, five deals a month. In a formulaic way. So, those are the two people I work with. If that sounds like you, I'd love to hop on the phone with you for 15 minutes, see if you're a good fit for our coaching program. Go to bookacallwithgreg.com and sign up for a free consultation today. So, listen, man, we could talk for sales about hours. I want to cover one more part on this podcast about how you were able, I mean, you've been in business what, since 2006, Eric? Yeah. So, you've been in the business for almost 20 years. You've been able yep. to shift your business model, you know, throughout the years as the market has ebbed and flowed. So like, just talk about like, what has that evolution looked like? Because I know you, at one time you were doing a lot of flipping and then you did a lot of turnkeys and now you guys are doing a lot of novations. So like, how have you been able to just adapt with the market? Because a lot of people now they see the new market and they're like, oh my God, it's so much harder to wholesale or whatever the issue is yeah. rehab. Like how do you stay on the cutting edge of that because that is really what's kept you guys as as like the dominant force in the south central p a market
1: yeah, so I think it's a it's a it's a really good question, super relevant right now, and um I think in its simplest form, you have to take what the market gives you, right mm-hmm. like for the last three years, uh, wholesaling was easy super business. lucrative yeah, and I said this to somebody the other day, and I was like, literally for three years, you just needed a house to be a wholesaler <laughs> now you need a deal, yeah. Right. You could sell houses. They weren't even deals. But now you have to have a deal. Right. So um, I talked about this before where I started doing turnkey uh, like four or five years ago because it got really hard to buy wholesale deals. Right. Like everybody talks about how great it was um, to be able to sell houses the last three years. But it got really hard to buy because there was way more competition. Yeah. Um, Right. And uh, for the first time that I can never remember, you could actually list a fixer upper on the MLS and sell to a retail buyer. People were doing crazy stuff. Um, So I think you have to be aware of what the market will give you. Like right now, what the market's giving us is FHA, VA buyers that need a little bit of seller's help, Um, obviously have to get an appraisal because FHA and VA both have condition reports associated with that appraisal. Um, and they want to get home inspections. Those are those buyers right now are paying top dollar. They're out in full force, and I'll tell you why. Those people could not buy a house the last three years. They were getting bullied by hedge funds, bullied by conventional buyers. Um, They would have to waive appraisals, which they can't do on an FHA VA loan. So those people couldn't capitalize on 3% interest rates. They couldn't get an offer accepted. When there's 15 offers, I promise you the first one to get crossed out off the list of possible options is an FHA VA buyer that needs 3% seller's help. Yeah. There was a guy just yeah. tagged me today who we taught novations to. He signed up December 15th. He's closed six novations between uh, December 15th and whatever. What's today? January 10th. Yeah, um, yeah. And the HUD he just posted, he said it was his largest profit deal um, in a while, maybe ever. There was a $340,000 house. They gave up 10 grand seller's help on the hood. Those deals were like that buyer wasn't getting $10,000 seller's help before, right? Wow. He obviously had it baked into his profit. So, you know, what's the market giving us right now? If you can figure out a way to get your deals, whether you're a wholesaler, whether you do innovations, whether you do fix and flip, whether you do wholesale, if you can put your properties in front of FHA VA buyers, you will get maximum amount of money for your house in the shortest period of time. So that's, that's what the market's giving you right now. And if you can hang in there long enough, all of the circumstances, the high interest rates, increasing unemployment, the recession, all of that stuff that's hurting our buyers right now is also hurting sellers. And it's going to take a period of time before you start to see some of these deals come down the pipeline, like pre foreclosures are right now are getting much um, more prominent, right? Well, you couldn't, there was no pre foreclosure during COVID and the year after, because, you know, in crazy states like you know, California and Pennsylvania, you weren't allowed to foreclose. So there weren't any pre-foreclosures. Right?
0: Yeah. Now, yeah, now close. it's catching up. It's yeah, the
1: forbearances are expiring. Um, I bought a house last last week. We closed, I don't know, five days before he hadn't made a payment in two years. And he had a, a forbearance agreement that extended almost two years, and it was a VA loan. His interest rate was like two and a half percent. Um, and we bought it sub two. Wow. Right? Is he didn't have a bunch of equity, um, but he had a bunch of equity in his rate. So right now, sub two creative finance innovations is what the market will give you. And if you're a wholesaler, like, those are all just you know different acquisitions disposition strategies. Yeah, most wholesalers you're just a marketing and sales company more so than a real estate company. Real estate companies own real estate; they hold assets, they remodel, they do construction, right? They property manage. Yeah. Uh, to, if you're a wholesaler, you're a sales and marketing company. So, if you have to innovate a little bit with your sales and marketing, that's not super risky. And so, if you can figure out what the market's giving you and innovate a little bit to capitalize on that opportunity without completely uprooting your business model, that's how you innovate and survive. You know, because 2006, when I got into the market, hyper competitive, right? You had a 500 credit score and a job, job was optional, you could get a mortgage. Yeah. Right? and uh, everybody was flipping houses. 2008, uh, 90% of my competition went out of business. Um, So I had a great opportunity to buy stuff. I was buying HUDs for 30 cents on the dollar. Um, I didn't even have to do direct the sale. You could buy bank-owned properties at at wholesale value, but you couldn't sell them to anybody because nobody could get a mortgage, right? (laughs) And everybody was out of work. And, uh, you know, so by 2012, 13, it started to recover and slowly, you know, wholesaling became more popular. More people were flipping homes, Around 2015 or 16, it became super competitive again. So I pivoted back to direct a seller, got out of fixing and flipping, started doing some wholesaling. Um, 2017, I started doing turnkey because nobody was competing on turnkey properties. I was buying three bedroom row homes um, in the city that would rent for 1200 and I could sell for 120. Most flippers weren't fighting over that stuff. They were looking at you know the more expensive homes with bigger spreads. So that's what the market was giving me. And I could sell them the turnkey buyers that didn't care about the color of the shutters or the interior design. They were just simply looking at it as a, uh, an ROI, right? If they were buying on the 1% rule, it's the people that a lot of, like Wall Street Journal called them laptop landlords. That's who I sold all my turnkeys to, laptop landlords, guys that uh, live in California and Utah and Washington State where the price of you know real estate is, say median price is $600,000. They can't buy income producing properties there. They wow. can buy a PA and, and use a good property manager um, and they can buy income producing properties here, right? Their million bucks goes a lot further in Pennsylvania than it does in California. And they're all, you know, our, our turnkey buyers were uh, high income W-2 employees. So, you know, they weren't looking for a side hustle. They wanted something close to passive. So turnkey was, I killed turnkey for four or five years. Rates went up to 7%, crookets, Cause you know, something that was flow and 300 bucks a month at 4% when it went to 7% it was negative cash flow so my turnkey business was brought to a screeching halt so we've gone heavy 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 novation right now sub 2 um and more fix and flip because i can get more of my deals in front of fha buyers and va buyers um so that's what we're doing right now
0: now it's 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 cool to see how you've pivoted like throughout all these cycles over the last almost 20 years like the turnkey business When you have low interest rates in your area, I mean, you're in like York. I'm assuming most of these properties are in like York, PA, these row homes. Yes.
1: York York and Harrisburg. Yeah. Uh, Like we we did really well with row homes, three bed, one and a half bath row homes.
0: You know, it's funny you say that because we do business a lot in Wilmington. Like we just locked up a house today in Wilmington, Delaware. And it's like the same thing. There's like these row homes, they're pretty cheap, they cash flow pretty well. And you can get them for like nothing, renovate them. And and yeah, someone uh, someone like, you know, at a, in California would be like, oh, that's a great deal. You know, which it is from a, an ROI yeah. standpoint until the interest rate 7% because they're still right. getting a bank loan, you know? So yeah. now that's awesome, man. So now what do you see happening in the next? I mean, obviously no one has a crystal ball here. We'll kind of end the show with this. What do you see the real estate market doing in the next 24 to 36 months? If you had to guess, obviously you're in collective genius, you, you know, a lot of smart people in there. Like what, what are you hearing from people and what do you think will happen? Because a lot of people now, like, they just don't know what to do. They're like, Oh my God, is the market going to get worse? Is it going to get better? Are rates going to go down? Like you know, what, what are you kind of looking at in, with your business? Cause you guys got a huge team down in PA.
1: Yeah. So I think it's very, very market specific. I think what happens in Phoenix, Arizona Versus what happens in York, Pennsylvania will look drastically different. So I wouldn't dare try and you know predict what's going to happen anywhere other than where I live because I can see things happening and notice trends and I see it firsthand. Um, we have a massive, massive shortage of inventory in our market. Um, I pulled up a deal the other day, didn't understand why it wasn't selling wholesale. And the numbers seem good. So I comped it out to see what reno and ARV would be if we were to keep it. And this particular house is like a 189 house in a a good school district up here. And um, I pulled between 150 and 250 in an entire school district. There were two homes available. Wow. Two. Right now, that's a big 150 to 250. That's a $100,000, you know, uh, spread there. Yeah, and um, the median price here is around 250. So, like, if you have something that's at the median price, and you're one of three properties. By the way, the other two were not renovated. They were, you know, uh, I didn't I don't remember all the details, but they weren't super attractive homes. It's probably why they were even active or available. If my house went on the market at 199 today, it would sell in five days. So, in our market, um, FHA VA buyers are still paying a premium for, for property. We're not seeing the crazy stuff like, you know, escalation offers way over list price. Although we did innovation the other day, we listed for two Oh nine. I don't know. We might have four or five offers that sold for two thirty. That was in Millersville, PA. Um, So Lancaster County, Millersville uh, pretty desirable. It's actually shockingly. It's the like top five places to retire in the U S Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Really? Really? I swear to you. Yeah. Lancaster PA, top five places that retire based on cost of living, um, restaurants, shopping, uh, healthcare, stuff like that. And then Lidditz PA that's in Lancaster was voted uh, the top, number one coolest small town in the US. Um, Wilber- really? You check this there. out
0: next time I'm back East. Yeah,
1: it's pretty crazy. But so anyway, you know that's a $200,000 house below the median price and it sold for $20,000 over list price. And it was a novation, like it wasn't renovated. It was a fourteen hundred square foot townhome with a one car garage on a slab. It's not like it was, you know, some mansion or something. It was yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just calendar. but like it, if you're if you're approved to you know around two hundred thousand dollars, there's just nothing to buy. So yeah. you know, um, for me, I, I think some people will say that interest rates are going to come down middle of this this year Q two. If those things hit low fives. I think the market's going to go absolutely berserk again. Because I think what they've done is they've created this pent up demand, this pent up demand, right? That, that closely emulates what we saw with COVID, right? Like when they told everybody had to stay in their houses for six months, what happened when they were allowed out? Bam! Allowed to,
0: Everyone was buying a house. Buying yeah. So
1: they, it's not like unemployment's crazy. It's not like, you know, so there's plenty of people out there with good credit and money that want to buy homes, and they're just not doing it right now, because the interest rates six and a half percent. And maybe maybe they can afford it. But they're like, listen, I'm not going to buy a 250 house, I want a 350 house. And in order for me to get the 350 house at what I can afford, the rates have to come to five. And I think the other part that'll make it worse than post COVID is you'll now have FOMO, where like when when the rates were in the threes post COVID, like, you could think logically it would continue forever. Now that we've seen rates dip and come back up, the people that were paying attention to go, man, when they dropped to 4.9 or five and an eighth, I better hurry up and buy before they go back up to seven.
0: And that's a very smart prediction not saying you're an economist like, or nobody was
1: saying, saying that when rates were three percent right like the media wasn't talking about like they talked about how historically low they were but no one said you better hurry up and do something before they go to seven and that happened like in a flash yeah right like it was the the, the, the fastest raise in interest rates i think we've ever seen ever in at least 40 or 50 years that's right crazy
0: no it's accurate i i think that's accurate i mean listen who knows you know well time will tell but i think it's a very uh legitimate uh prediction and and uh you know the the, the truth is you got to just be willing to be adaptive so eric if people want to check you out what's the best way to follow you online and then we'll uh we'll end the show
1: instagram eric underscore brewer invest underscore
0: beautiful we will put that in the notes eric and on instagram. eric under eric underscore brewer underscore yes beautiful we'll put that in the notes and uh, we'll talk to you soon eric have a great rest of your day thanks for coming on the show thanks,
1: brother. see you man later
0: Hey, what's going on? This is Greg Hellbeck here. And if you're listening to this, odds are you are a real estate investor. And a big question that I always get asked is, Greg, how do you get your deals? So I have the answer to that question. The main way that I get deals, and it's been this way for years, is through direct mail marketing. Now, direct mail marketing is certainly not easy, but if you have direct mail dialed in the right way, it is profitable month after month after month after month. So I'm actually... Going to give you a free guide, which is my top five direct mail mistakes. So, if you want to check out my guide absolutely for free, go to directmailclass.com, put in your name and email, and you will get my guide, which is my top five fatal direct mail mistakes. If you just use that guide alone, it will make you a much better direct mail marketer. So, if you want to learn how to optimize and become very successful finding deals through direct mail marketing for your real estate investment company, go to directmailclass.com and get my free guide. Thank you for listening to an episode of the Real Estate Investing Fast Track. I hope you got a lot of value from this specific episode. And there are a few takeaways that you are able to gather from this to implement in your business so you can be a more successful real estate investor. So if you did get value from the show, if you could do me a favor and leave me a review on iTunes, it would really mean a lot to me. That's how we keep growing the show and getting great guests is because people see the reviews. They see that we have a high quality show and they want to contribute as a guest. So that would be great. Also, if you got value, if you could share the show on social media, that would be great because that is how people see this besides the reviews. So once again, if you did get value, if you could do me a favor and leave me a review on iTunes and share the show on social media, it would really mean a lot to me and I'll see you on the next episode.